Hey, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. I'm Paul Gillette, and joining me today is Chris Palomares. We've been having uh, email back and forth out programming Tsunami 2s. A lot of good things been said about uh, Tsunami 2. This is my first one, and it just, it's totally different than the Tsunami 1. I always just manually input the values, and you got to where you just knew them, knew where the values had to be for the different types of locomotives. You just did it. This is a different animal. So after reading uh, parts of the manual, I went, you know, I am going to download JMRI and use uh, Dakota Pro as a resource. Well, that was a whole different experience. Nothing bad against JMRI, but it's as complex in certain areas as the tsunami is. So Chris and I decided to get together today, go over the pros and cons, the experiences, and then we're going to get George from Soundtracks on the Line, perhaps even with Matt Dowd, and see if we can go over these and get some answers that'll benefit everybody. So stay tuned. Well, I I think it would be a good conversation just to chat about the things you ran into and the the hiccups you encountered. Okay. Because I don't think that you're going to be the only person out there that run into these things, especially with the lighting functions being in the upper functions. Yeah. I think it's really important to 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 mention that and some of the things that you encountered just with the general installation that it might have uh, been a little bit different than what you were used to. Okay. Well, and you're right. It to do the first locomotive probably took eight to 10 hours. Not surprising. Yeah. And you offered the help, for instance, on how to reassign F5, which that all of a sudden just made a number of things gel for me. Uh, But what you still have to do beyond that, and I was using JMRI, because when you reassign functions to different keys you have still have to go back in and disable the original assignment like right you your uh help put rpm ramping up on f9 well f9 is also the grade costing whistle routine right and so what you have to do is go in and cancel that right. otherwise you get them both when you're trying to uh, rpm up so and i've never used jmri so i had a a second set of challenges. Uh, <laughs> getting familiar with the software too. Yeah, I have always just... Now, Loka is easy because they do have a programmer to do a lot of the macros for you, but on tsunamis, shoot, I just always went through all the the uh, CVs. You do enough of them, all of a sudden, you don't even need a script. You know what you've got to do next. You know where the values are. Right. And there's a new thing with the pages. Oh, gosh, yes. Yes. Now, too, because in in the other Tsunami 1, pages never existed. Right. So there's a lot of stuff in here that I think is really, you know, okay, let's just point out the things that we noted. And then the questions that we develop, we'll just note them. And then what I'll do is I'll pull up an email right now and I'll just prepare it for George. And this will just be sort of like an outline. It is an amazing decoder. 
right out of the package once you get the basic wires hooked up. Even while the address is still three, you hit speed step one, and this Genesis SDP45 just started creeping almost imperceptibly. Yeah. I mean, the motor control just blew me away. It's significantly better. I mean, if there was something that you can really identify as being different about yeah. this decoder, I would say the 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 speed algorithms are much, much, much improved over the the earlier one. The thing we got to look out for is how do we go from, let's just be realistic that we're going to be trying to consist like a tsunami one and a tsunami two and good old advanced consisting. And with the different speed curves, we're going to have to be sensitive to that. And we're going to have to figure out some, some values for the tsunami one to at least put them closer together because you know that is something different that is a good point to note and maybe that's the question to george is what methods do you suggest for speed matching between tsunami and tsunami one and maybe it's a custom speed table you've got to invoke for the t1s i watched a video by this uh young man ns24 i think is his name on YouTube, where he was speed matching different manufacturers' locomotives. Oh, really? Yeah. And he wasn't concerned about speed step one or two. He wanted them to be close by the time he had speed step 20. And he topped out everything at, he's freight only, speed step 40. Mm -hmm. So beyond that, he just flattened the, the curve. And he used one of the digital speedometers. Mm-hmm. They use the LEDs. Uh, it's like a speed tunnel. And uh, we sold them at an affair with trains, and people were just so impressed. They were, we couldn't keep them in stock. So that's how he did it. But when I started just by way of familiarizing myself with JMRI, even after I hooked it up, it took me two hours to find out it would it would start, but it wasn't reading. You know, I had no pages or anything, and I had these red warnings at the bottom, so I called uh, Jerry Riley, who's uh, one of uh, Bruce Petrarca's buddies. Uh-huh. And, and he said, he said, I think all you've got is JMRI is old enough, it's looking for a serial port. He said, and you're probably using <laughs> a USB printer yeah. cable. And I went, yes. He said, just change the preference. And I went, okay, where is it? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> so two hours later, after doing Google searches on JMRI, reading you know, the instructions here and there, then I went to Model Railroad Hobbyist, did the Google search within the discussion forums, and you know, had a lot of good information, but nothing was telling me. And I thought, now, wait a minute, logic says this should be within JMRI. So I just started going pulling all the tabs down at the top, like file, edit, whatever. And there it was. And I went, okay, let's go in there. And click, click, click. All of a sudden, I can see the uh, the screen just change. And so I thought, that's okay. It was good to learn. Okay, so great motor control. Great motor control. Good. That's right. One of the common observations through all these multiple posts over the last two years on MRH was, it sure is loud right out of the box. 
And yep. it is the uh, the STP-45. I was changing out the uh, Railmaster DSM-8. I wanted to put uh, three 16-millimeter 16 16 diameter tablet speakers in. I got them from, I think it's TVW Miniatures up in uh, Georgia's either in Wisconsin or Minnesota. And I used them once before, did three of them, series parallel, and my ready-to-run Atherin uh, ST40 absolutely growls. <laughs> by in a good way or a bad way? Oh, in a good way. I okay. mean, you can hear that throaty <laughs> response of the prime mover. Right. And especially at idle. So... That's what I went for. So it took me a while to work out the the mounting on it. And, of course, the first couple 30, 40 seconds of it, I mean, it's just all garbled because the volume is so loud. It's just overdriving the speakers right. and the files are clipping. But once I started bringing it down, I went, wow. So another question is, are these the same sound files? Just, you know, with a higher... Uh, SPL to them. Okay, so let's let's ask George that. Yeah. Are the are the sound files the same as the Tsunami one? Right. And the other reason I ask that is the second Tsunami two I put in was a one of the current run uh, Proto E8s. It's mm-hmm. an Amtrak, and so I had a uh, their special version with the supposed twin five sixty sevens. And I had this thing balanced out uh, using two 28-millimeter speakers. And it took me, I bet you, an hour, Chris, mm-hmm. to rebalance the sound in this E-unit once I put the T2 in it. Okay. That's what prompted my thought of, I wonder if these are different sound files or have they just been massaged? But it seemed like the frequency were different because the previous ranges I had on the graphic equalizer were still muddy. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And so I even took them out, the, uh, the MRC. Their 28 millimeter with the enclosed speaker is a very good speaker. It's got the same basic speaker as Railmaster's RND28. Mm-hmm. Much more massive magnet and so forth. So I had used those. I've used them in a number of installs for people. And I could not get them to adjust. I even pulled them out. I was firing down through the, the frame because the new Protos have uh, speaker openings and they have uh, provision for that. And I turned them around to where I was firing back up through the body. And I played with the uh, graphic equalizer a little bit more. Had the volume. The overall volume, the horn volume, and the prime mover volume, sub 90. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where the STP-45s are like 150, 160, I had them that low. And I went, holy cow. Because those same decoders in my fantasy CSX E8 ABA, again, Proto E unit, those volumes are 150, 160. Right, yeah. And this is down, I went, good grief, I'm under 80. And so I thought, okay, let's ask George that question. Have you really ramped up the amper or what's happening? Because these are just a different animal. Yep, 
Yep. So let, let's talk about the what's going on with the preamp on these things. Yeah. So my question is, what's going on with the preamp? Is it different than the Tsunami one? Very good. So something that I, I, I would encourage you, it, you know, kind of bringing in the JMRI aspect of things. And the reason the, why the JMRI aspect of things is, in my mind, so important. You can't fully explore the decoder to its maximum potential. Oh, absolutely. With, with going page by page. And that's the thing that's much different than the Tsunami one is that there's pages on here. And what's pages? It's like indexes. You, you change the index, it's like swapping, flipping a page. And there's yes. the same number of uh, CV values, but the page number is different. So it's it, you got it, it's something that you're for people that are familiar with Log Sound. It's that's just how it's been for a long time. But this is brand new for a tsunami too. Yes. No. And you know, I would make changes, and I was jotting down notes because there are so many CVs. I'm going now. Wait a minute. What did I make that other mm-hmm. CV? Because there was this interdependent relationship, especially when you get to the dynamic digital exhaust. And so I thought, there's got to be a way to either export these CV files, just print them off. I couldn't right. get, a, I could not get them to ex, uh, import into Excel. But then finally, I went, well, what if I just print these? Now the print utility on JMRI, at least as it relates to the Tsunami Two, is in very good. It is yeah. very good. But to your point, when I printed these off and I just went, well, I'm going to print off every sheet. You can selectively print whichever sheet you want, but I printed them all off. It's 24 pages. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So buy a lot of paper. <laughs> but then I went, was able to go through and highlight, especially on the function mapping, what I had set this at, set that, that, and things started gelling. It helped me learn what it was. Well, let, let, before you finish up that point, let's let's make another one. The function map. This is something that you and I kind of traded some emails on. Yeah. While 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 you were doing some of uh, your installation and programming, could you describe for the listeners what you ran in? Well, I wanted to control lighting uh, FX three, and I wanted to control it with F five. Because everybody, you can control the gyro light, you know, the front one, the rotary beacon with F5. I didn't want it to be F22 or so forth. And And I remember George said, well, that's one of those things that you set it and forget it. Because Tsunami, if it stutters, you still have to reset the lights. Right. So it isn't to set it, forget it. No, it isn't. And and the other point, too, is there's a lot of DCC systems that have active refresh for the functions that you have on between, what is it, function zero and yeah. function nine or something like that. So if you put them on the upper registers in the 20s, it's going to do this very annoying habit every time you short out or every time you go against the wrong way of a turnout or just you know hit a piece of dirt, you're going to have to turn, turn on your lights on. Or you're going to have to put a current keeper in there. Yeah, you're going to have to put a current keeper. But either way, it's still not really you set it and forget it type thing. I think. Correct. You, you know, you and I know a marketing get up when we 
when we smell it. And that was a total marketing gimmick because there's just, we've been doing five and six for the FX lights. Yes. Since when, when a tsunami one rolled out for the first time. And exactly. that's been how many years? Um, yeah, a lot of years. And, and, but you know, we still had ramping up on, what was it? Nine and 10. Yes. So why change it that dramatically? It kind of, in a, in a criticism to some, into the default setup for the Tsunami 2, and it's the reason why Athern just couldn't jump on board with it as is, that sort of uh, configuration just really sandboxes the Tsunami 2, so it's only really compatible in its default configuration. you got to put it that way. In the, the, the default configuration, it's only going to work with other Tsunami 2 products. Right. Um, that's just not acceptable. <laughs> But f- to their credit, they do, in JMRI, give you the legacy function mapping. That's a drop-down sheet. Right. And I looked at it, and I went, okay, so I'm presuming that if I set this stuff here, it's going to do the background moves of the CVs and so forth. I thought, no, I'm going to take Chris's advice, and I'm going to springboard off of of that and just learn how to remap this so that now doing uh, your suggestion of RPM up, RPM down at now function 9, function 10, that means I've got to take the original function 10, which was straight to 8, and I've got to find a logical home for it. Well, you know, here's the thing. And, and you know, when I was really exploring tsunami 2 for athern i learned a lot about it and then i put a lot of just operational sort of uh instances into my thinking as well i i figured out that the legacy function map is really really handy if you want to do kind of like a toggle yeah and i i ended up setting up the, the the default configuration for the Athern Tsunami 2 this way. On function 3, that's usually the shorthorn. Yeah. Some people might want the grade crossing to be played on function 3. Okay. So what what I did is I just went ahead and said, okay, grade crossing signal, you're on function 3. But then on the legacy function map, I overrid it because that's what that had. The legacy overrides the, the new function mapping. Right. I, I, I assigned shorthorn to function three. So now, now with, with that done, what, what happens? It's a single CV change. If you just really quickly want to set up the gray crossing signal on three, yeah, yeah, or if you want to toggle it back to being the shorthorn, depending on say if you have a different operator running it and he wants the gray crossing signal, he doesn't care about the shorthorn. It's a single CV change versus like what you have to do. And the main one is, okay, you got to do two or more different CV changes in order to assign the short horn to a different one. Plus then go back and you got to move another one out of the way. No, the legacy one overrides the new, the new style one. And it just makes it a single CV change. You can be up and running and it's an operator's thing. You know, it's like, okay, CV, whatever to zero and it's cleared out. And guess what? You have the, the shorthorn. Then you just rewrite it to the original value and you're back to the shorthorn, you know? So, yes. 
And which leads me to, and this is personal choice, but judging by some of the comments on the different threads about T2 versus T1 versus even Loxound. Yeah. People, and I do this, is I segregate my concepts by decoder. I do not right. commingle ESUs with QSI. I've only got one QSI, but just an example. And this is going to cost me money because I am now going to change out more decoders to T2 just for the motor control where I had originally T1s. Right. And if, you know, I'll have to make index card cheat sheets. And just draw out the function map on there. Okay, I want to press this for this, this for this, this for this. Right. And then have a second set for low sound because, you know, they're direct to eight and blah, 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 coast, throttle holds all different. Okay, biggest challenge, you know, with your help and then once I figured out the, the remapping, the lights under JMR, I were not confusing, just more laborious. Instead of going, especially in JMR, just looking at CV 49, 50, 51, 52, there's right. a lot more choices to put in there, which is okay. What I do like is the fact that I can control the brightness. Mm-hmm. That was one of the features I liked about uh, ESU. I can now control the brightness. Yes. I like Even that. with LEDs. Yes, because you're setting the LED factor. When I took the first SDP45 apart, it was one of the first DCC installs I did several years ago. And I put Surface Man LEDs in it. And as careful as I was trying to be in getting this, you know, hornet's nest of or spider's web of wires tucked back up in the shell, I pulled one of the LEDs loose. Mm-hmm. Not as simple as just pulling it out of the the uh, shrink tube, I pulled one of the magnet wires loose. And I went, oh, oh, crap. So I went, all right, so the cab's got to come off. The interior's got to come out. And so I unsoldered everything just so I could move the body around. And I went, you know, I do this a lot better now, but I wonder if I've got another small LED that'll fit right up in that opening. Mm-hmm. Long story short, 1.8 millimeter LEDs do. So about three hours later, I've reworked your shell to accept the 1.8 millimeter LEDs, which actually help clean up the wiring. Mm-hmm. Because now I didn't have magnet wire. I had 30 gauge wire off the trimmed prongs. and But I thought, this is not a big deal because I can go in and tame the brightness of this LED now on a tsunami. Yes, you can. That's CV. So I thought, this is very good. So that's a kudo for George and the boys. Okay, so we'll say kudo and then um, adjustable. Brightness on the all the light. Yeah. Okay, so we're on lights, and we've talked about the function mapping. And George may know. I think we need to ask him because he may know because I'm going, all right, so... I assigned this for the headlight, and now I've got checkboxes for driving forward, driving reverse, standing idle forward, standing idle. Oh, yeah, driven functions. That is something new, isn't it? Yes. So what does that mean? (laughs) I left them all blank because I didn't know. I did not know. In fact, I can laugh at this now. It brought me to tears the other night after I did all this programming and I put the body on just to hear how that sound while it was still here on the T2 
test track, headlights came on, F5 came on, no sound, no go forward, no go back, no nothing. And I went, what the heck is this? So I disconnected JMRI. I thought, maybe there's interference here. And I tried everything in the world, and it wouldn't let me read values. It wouldn't let me do anything. So I ended up, even JMRI wouldn't let me do a CV8 at 8. So I did that on my own thing, depowered it, and thank goodness when I plugged it in, I got the headlight flash. And I went, I have no idea what I did. Something that the decoder did not like it. The lights were on, but I couldn't turn them off. I couldn't, it wouldn't play sound. It wouldn't move, but it was oh, okay. Wow. It, it all came <laughs> back because I panicked. I went, I didn't see any smoke, so I don't think I fried it. I have no oh. idea, but I was, I went, okay, let's be very careful when we're entering these values on JMRI. Right. Well, uh, so question number five is now, yes. what do driven functions do? Yes. And what would be a practical application? Right. How about that? Upside and downside. Upside, and downside. Now, the, the thing that is most mysterious to me was the dynamic digital exhaust. Ah, DDE. And I remember when we had the previous conversations with George, you were praising the DDE. And yes. So I followed the instructions. CV you know, 31 at 16, CV 32 at, at this put this value in and so forth and hit speed step one and then go to, what is it, 512 or whatever it is and put the value of 255. And I'm watching this STP go around the railroad and admittedly, you know, Chris, this is only a 13 by 14 room. Yeah. Two main lines. And I do have two two grades, 2%. And one's just a little bit longer than the rest of it's flat. So then I started setting, I go, wait a minute, what's the attack? What's the volume kill? What's this? What's that? And I don't think the manual sheets are sufficiently clear to give you a heads up because you need, I think, a baseline value on all these things to be able to tune it. And so I went, I read the instruction and, you know, zero does this. 255 does this, so forth. After about an hour, just the locomotive by itself, when it would throttle up, all of a sudden, it would just scream. But then two seconds later, the volume would be cut. Not back to normal, but to that cut. And I went, now in watching the locomotive, I understood what the DDE was doing. And I thought, boy, that is cool, but I've got to find out what's wrong with this, the sound values. So I ended up, I bet you, two, two and a half hours just with the locomotive, watching it go up the grade and have this, oh, is that natural out? Now it's not. So I got the sheets out and I'm going, all right, let's set everything to zero. But I didn't know what was default because the manual doesn't tell you what the default values are. So I did a, a CV8 at eight, did another reset. But this time I had a saved file on JMRI that I could load in prior to me messing around with the digital exhaust. So, ah, there's the default values. So I knew where my starting point was. But it still took, oh, I don't know how many circuits of this track to get not so much the motor, but the volume smoothed out to where when it throttled up, 
it was a nice smooth transition up right down to coast now good news is that when i did the second locomotive i had i printed out that sheet uh-huh. so i knew where my baselines were on the right. e unit mhm okay so when i hooked up you know six weighted coal cars and five heavyweights to these locomotives just to create a drag and load it is so impressive what it does with it Yes. It's like being at Tehachapi or someplace watching a locomotive take or listening to a locomotive attack a grade. Right. Oh, it's so good. It is excellent. I I love I love DDE as a single unit switcher. It is so much fun to mess around with that locomotive. Um what I don't like DDE is when it's in multiple unit it bugs the it bugs me so bad <laughs> because what happens is and we encountered this on our on our testing at Athern and we elected that you know it's probably best to keep DDE off because most of our customers and I'm just talking about Athern customers here sure run run Athern locomotives in a consist okay 9 times out of 10 this thing is going to live you know, that SDP-45 is going to live with another SDP-45. Maybe not always. Maybe someone will throw it in commute service. And when it's in commute service, having the DD on and it's a single locomotive, you will love it. Uh, I just don't think that DDE right now is the right option for anything more than two locomotives. Well, and the and the reason being is okay. when you get to three or four, the the locomotive closest to the load is ramped up, and the locomotive all the way on point is just floating. And when you're oh. in a multiple unit configuration, you want all your locomotives doing it the same notch, because that's what the real ones do. Well, the, the so, question to George is: Is there a way to have that? You know. Not independent control, but have each locomotive respond in kind. Okay. If the, if the DDE values, like on these two SCP-45s, are set their mirror images, or the two SCP-40Fs I've got on order. Right, right. You know, how do we get that stuff to work? Or is it possible? Well... I, I I have an answer for that, but it's I don't think that George may completely agree with it. So I'm, we should probably ask that question anyway. But I will give you at least my response as an experienced modeler working with the Tsunami Two. Okay. And the response is pretty simple: manual notching. Well, that occurred to me. That, so you know, wherever you remap it. Now, one thing I noticed when I got these locomotives fine-tuned and listened to them go around. In fact, while I was, I think it was before I got the sound tuned, but what I was reminded of in the locomotive control was I have one Atlas with a QSI Titan. And I've always been impressed right out of the box with its, how the throttle works. Right. RPMs up, locomotive starts moving, RPMs drop, the value goes down, and then 
it coasts, seemingly coasts for a while, then a mild blip in the throttle. And it, I went, this is so realistic. And I've always just, you know, thought this is a cool uh, locomotive. And now, in my opinion, the Tsunami 2 with a properly set up uh, DDE mimics that reality. I think mm-hmm. it is so dead nuts on. You know, and something that George showed with uh, the DDE enabled um, was how to set up the decoder with using your brakes and feathering yeah. the brakes and coming into a stop and stuff. Yeah. It is really neat because you play that locomotive like you would a video game. Yes. You know, um, so maybe that right now I have the question, what practices do you suggest for MU configurations with DDE? So the next one would be how, how, what configurations do you suggest for using perhaps the brake, the, the, the new braking yes. features yes. with DDE? Okay. Or combined with DDE. Okay. Okay. So what configurations do you suggest for okay. braking or the new, the new braking? So, so yeah, this is getting pretty good here. I mean, we're coming up 10 questions. We're on number nine right now. Well, okay, back while we're still on consist. When I read the sheets, it, it seemed as if F21 and F22 were being auto-populated by either JMRI or the decoder as far as what would respond to the consist address. Obviously, you wanted F5, F6, or throttle up, throttle down, uh, straight to eight, and mute. Mm-hmm. I think those were the auto, if if I read these sheets right. Because when you look at that in JMRI, right. that conscious sheet, that well might be uh, a menu written in, in yeah. Chinese. I went, what the heck is this? Yeah. Maybe George has got some insight on, okay, here's how you configure those locomotives to properly work in unison. Yeah, because, yeah, you do want, you don't want the horn to work on all the locomotives, but you do. If you're throttling up, you do want it to throttle up. And that presumes that you've remapped throttle up, throttle down to the same keys, same values needs each decoder. The other thing I haven't done any work on is the alternate mixer. And me to you, that strikes me as like the F6 fader function on Sound, where you can predetermine that you want the volume to drop off by Mm -hmm. X number of decibels or volume. So I presume that's what it was. But then when I looked at it, I went, Wow, there's no master volume here. It it deals with all the sound files. That's right. Okay. It deals with everything individually okay. instead of having like a master alternate master volume, you know. So it, it's marketed soundtracks is marketed that as a way to yes. quickly and easily half your volume going from like a club situation. Yes. 
to a home layout situation, which may be a really true, but the alternate mixer, at least in my mind, is much more powerful and much more useful than, than being sort of relegated as something that you put up in function 21 and you might hit it between when you're in different uh, situations. It's really not hard to program one CV value to change the volume, but there's some operation things that, that yes. you can bring into, into using the alternate mixer, I found. And I, George might have a lot more to say about the alternate mixer than I do, but um, one thing that I, I think I've talked in previous podcasts okay. about that I found incredibly useful is the dynamic break. And what I do is on the on the master okay. uh, mixer, what you do is you mute the dynamic break. Okay. And then you turn on dynamic break makes your prime mover drop to idle. So now what's going to happen and oh, okay. So now what's going to happen is whenever you hit the dynamic break without being in the alternate mixer, your dynamic break won't make any noise, but it'll drop the prime mover to idle. So you now have like coasting F4 as straight to idle. You have a straight to eight, but now you have a straight to idle. I've, it's coasting. It's the it's probably one of the most useful features out of all of them because you know you set up your locomotive and you get it up to a certain point, and the prime mover right. ramping at that at that same speed forever makes no sense. It's not realistic. What I like doing is just hitting F4. It drops the prime mover to idle, and you just kind of creep along. You can hear right. the clickety-clack that's brand new into the Tsunami 2. It wasn't in the Tsunami 1, but it's a nice little feature. <laughs> so when you're coasting along, you hear the the you know the jointed rail sound, and it's really it's 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 a real sweet thing, you know. Um, what I, and then what you do with the alternate mixer once you have those things set up is set all your values to the equivalents of what they were on the main mixer. So if you're like your horn is at 128 on the main mixer, you change your alternate mixer to that and you just go through every one of those values and make it the same, except for the dynamic break. You move that back up to a not muted position. So when you engage your um, alternate mixer, you have your dynamic break now. And that is really realistic from what I've talked to uh, a few of my engineer friends. They, they said, yeah, what you have to do is you have to go into idle and you got to wait a prescribed amount okay. of time for the, you know, the excess current that's been built up to, to dissipate. And then you engage the dynamic brakes and then you can, you know, start activating your dynamic brakes it isn't just something that you go you hit a switch and you're in dynamic brake mode there's a time that has to lapse before you can actually engage your dynamic brakes and when when you have your alternate mixer uh with your dynamic brake with an actual okay. value that's not muted then you can kind of simulate that so something you might want to try with your stp45 with the dynamic or yeah, with the dynamic break, that is a practical usage of the alternate mixer. And, you know, honestly, I think it's a little bit more useful than having a club setting and a home setting. It's, you know, honestly, the alternate mixer, if it was really intended for that, there would be a master alternate mixer volume. <laughs> you know, I, I, my suggestion is to just 
you're you're going to find the the coasting feature a lot more interesting along with the dynamic brake than worrying about oh yeah that's a button that I just press when I go to a club you know <laughs> Hey, and, and, but you know when you really start thinking about it. Okay, so you run into a piece of dirt, and the alternate mixer goes off. So it's going to be loud or real quiet for a for a little bit of time until you can reengage that function. I don't think that's really a practical application of it. It sounds good as a marketing sort of thing to justify our alternate mixer, but as far as like being a power user and someone that actually enjoys running and operation and stuff you're going to find it a whole lot more useful doing this other way with coasting so valid point let's see what else do we have we're on number 10 i think we're good with 10 questions and then we can fire this off okay tried to speed match these two locomotives yet let alone juggle the values to get them to conscious together i did that with uh the other day uh with three tsunami one unit and i was amazed at how much difference the same model locomotive due to variances i guess in the way the motors were wound you know friction in a gearbox whatever how especially on consist when you're adding cv23 and 24 i believe it is into the mix as far as you know the leverage factor on con or on uh momentum for in a contest and i went wow who would have thought you have to sit here and tweak these things just to get them to run together in a contest so the one is not trying to shove the right. other one off the track so i haven't done that yet with these two guys so maybe because i can tell you the proto and this atherin genesis totally different reaction speed step to speed step so, oh yeah, and I yeah. counted on commingling the uh, STP forty five with the uh, FP forty five and maybe the the E because I've got old passenger train journal annuals from seventy five and seventy six, and of course mm -hmm. they're just loaded with the early Amtrak years when you know they were just taking delivery of the the first release, second release, and the first FP forties. So they had E-units, FP7s in there. And I thought, boy, I'd really like to mix this up. I may have to create some sound dummies, you know, just to get... Right. No, I've done that. <laughs> you, you know, I'm laughing, not, not at that, but it, it, it just strikes me as so yeah. funny. In the DCC era, <laughs> where we have to resort to dummies, like it's, you know, DC analog... Yeah. In order to get the consisting, is there something yeah. wrong about that? I mean, this is, this is, we were told back when DCC was in its infancy that you'd be able to do yes. anything. Now, now the reality is, yeah, you could do re anything, but how much time do you really want to invest into anything? <laughs> I had a uh, MTHPA that kept blowing the motor control transistors. And after the oh warranty replaced them, Matt Herman, he got Paul. He said, the motor, there's something wrong with the motor. And he said, that's the current all jacked up. And so MTH wasn't responsive. And that's okay. And so all I did was take the drive shaft and the worm gears out, lived it up real well, and it became a sound dummy. 
it wasn't the lead unit in the contest. It was the trailing unit. And it just notches up, sounds great, looks great. But, yeah, the motor doesn't work, but everything else does. Oh, yeah. that's hilarious. But I wasn't going to blow another 100 bucks on a decoder, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it stands to reason. And it's funny that you're not I, you're not the only person oh, yeah. doing this. Uh, I hear about the, it. It's a pretty common thing that we just sort of accept as, like, this is the sound era of digital decoders. But... It, it's it's this is sort of turning into a rant and forgive me if this is too much of a blatant rant but you know dcc was never intended it was an open platform where you could take any manufactured dig- digital decoder run it on any command station and it'll consist with anybody else's decoder you might have to speed match it a little bit but it was accepted that this right. would be true it, it to me it, once we hit the sound era, I think that the DCC manufacturers of these DCC systems were not invoking any, any brand new operational advantages to their throttles. What you know, I I, I think that Matt Herman and ESU had it right with uh, with the full throttle feature, but they blew it in the fact that it's proprietary. And they should have, they had every opportunity to put full throttle into the throttle <laughs> and not the decoder. Every, every sound decoder does manual notching. Why they couldn't have built it into their throttle? Like, hey, when, with our throttle, you get full throttle. And you just manually notches all your decoders. You can use whatever sound decoder with our throttle and it'll be awesome. No, they didn't do it that way. So they took sophistication that was supposed to be in the throttle and built it into their digital decoder. So now it doesn't work with anybody else's. But you, then you have like TCS and soundtracks doing the same dang thing. <laughs> no. it, it, it's, it's just getting to something where we need to bring the power back to the throttle and we need to, you know, kind of sandbox and corral some of these dcc manufacturers to do that and that is my rant and i'm gonna get off the soapbox on that one like you say we're not the only ones facing this stuff it i thought you know this is not a big deal because have you seen any of the videos i've posted up on youtube or posted on mrh i haven't i haven't been to mrh And in quite some time. And you know what? I'd like to get onto your it's YouTube channel Dogger. because I do. Okay, Duck Dogger on YouTube. Great. I, I will look you up there. Those videos that are shot there, including the uh, the one if Rod Serling were a model railroader, those are all filmed within maybe six feet of mainline by controlling the mm-hmm. you know use of a tripod, controlling the zoom, controlling on whether well, or not stills or movie, but and the reaction's been good because I've shot them from not above. There's some scenes like I'm standing on a bluff, but most of them are shot like I'm standing on the ground. But you mm-hmm. will see both your stuff and some of the others. And it's driven me to do insane detail. Ah. If you've gone to TracksideScenery.com and you look at what Joey Ricard does, I went, this is so real because of all the minutiae details. So the farmhouse has a trash can. It's got stacks of soda bottles. I'm sure an affair with train soda was crazy when I ordered $100 worth of miscellaneous detail parts. 
brooms, <laughs> push lawnmower, all this kind of stuff. But when you yeah. see it in the video or the stills, it just that's where I'm focusing on is just my wife goes, Won't you get bored when you're done? I said, Honey, it's taken me like a year to do ten feet of scenery. I don't think I'm gonna be done anytime soon. <laughs> That's a fair yes. assessment, you know. But it's just because I enjoy the video and the photography, you know, like Ken does, Patterson. Mm -hmm. And Joe even used one of my steam photos as the uh, artwork on one of his mass emailers because I had taken mm -hmm. speaker batting and feathered it out like steam and okay. had it drifting up out of there in front of the trees and even uh, blow by on the cylinders and he said i love it so i've been working with how to make that even more realistic so now it's just how can i make this even more realistic so well i look forward to checking yeah, that out yeah there's a bunch of them on there so what else do you want to put on our list or do is there anything meaningful to or is this enough to keep George busy for an hour answering questions? I think this will keep George pretty busy, but we might want to just look at Current Keeper okay. real quick. Did you have any chance, uh, any time to mess around with that? I did not that? buy a Current Keeper, and I thought okay. I might go ahead and order one from an affair with trains because it's a plug-in and just to experience it because, yeah, even though there's not a lot of track here and I've got a CMX track cleaning car that I can fill with alcohol and run around. Every once in a while, a locomotive wants to pick a switch. So I'm thinking, let's get a current keeper and see how that works. Because it is plug-in, and again, that's that's a kudo for uh, soundtracks not making us get in there and solder. Yeah, it's, it's nice having that yep. thing right there. Oh, something else just occurred to me. So I, my question is kind of, related to current okay. keeper and it's something that we should probably know up front before we go as far as okay. current keeper and there's what i've noticed uh for like keep alive yeah. type stuff that there's some sort of interference when you're trying to program really so yeah so i'm i'm my question to george is does a current keeper plugged into the board into the onboard socket interfere with program. Excellent. And then since we haven't tried it yet through your locomotive, that, you know, it's something you want to do, but we got to be cautious of and mindful of, you know, installing that product. Maybe that socket is, a, you know, it's nice not having to unsolder and desolder, you know, leads over yeah. and over whenever you try to, you just simply unplug it and then you go on, Reprogram. It just means you've got to take right. the shell off. Right, right. It's 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 not <laughs> it's not as easy as just like put it on and right. forget about it. You know, you just got to be mindful whenever you got to change a value. And you know what? That would get very annoying when you go from a club scene to back home over and over, having to plug it and plug it back in or something like that. We it would be it would make more sense to put it on like a switch. If that's even yeah. necessary. So let's let, let's see what George says about these 10 questions. Actually, it's nine. Four was a kudos about having the adjustable brightness on the FX pads. And we'll, we'll just see what he says about some of these things. And maybe we can get a good conversation with him 
about um, you know some more advanced topics. Okay, we get this thing installed. What next? You know that uh, that's what I was going to mention. I I presume you do too, but I get emails from Facebook every time somebody likes the uh, podcast page, and you can go mm-hmm. look at their comments and stuff like that. And several of the people over the last month have specifically commented that they really enjoyed the issues where we just have the conversation. There's not necessarily a guest, but we're just talking about facets of modeling as it impacts us. Right, right. And the, the way I want to, I present, the reason I presented this format is it gets that conversation between me and you. And then we bring it in with some sort of direction. You go on a journey with we, we kind of go through the motions of installing these things and getting hands-on and just being model railroaders talking amongst ourselves. And then we can go to the professionals that have the answers. And then, you know, stuff that we see is like, you know, we need to put some attention on this that maybe hasn't always been in the forefront. We can put some attention okay. on now. So. Yeah, I, I, I think this is going to really help help bring some light to this product. And, you know, it, 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 I think it's just going to be useful all around. Well, I've had guys uh, email me and go, have you done any T2s yet? No, not yet, or I've just started. And they go, I'm just so overwhelmed by it, I don't know what to do. And I went, okay. I said, yeah. you know what? Keep, keep listening to the podcast. I said, uh, Chris has got an idea how to address this. So... We know what, Chris. Let's just see if we can get a hold of George on the line. Can you, you got his number? Can you call him? You know, I have George on speed dial because I ask him so many darn questions. Right, let's, let's call him right let's now. Let's get answers. Hey, Paul, Chris, how are you guys? Okay, so Chris was able to get George on the phone, and joining George is uh, Matt Dowd. So, hey, guys, do you want to talk about some uh, installer user concerns? Uh, Sure, be happy to. Hey, thanks Uh, for having us on, guys. Nice to chat with you guys. Oh, love it. Now, I believe you got Chris's email where he summarized 10 uh, questions that, you know, were my perspective as a first-time installer of a Tsunami 2, even though I've done a lot of installs. When you go in to uh, ride that horse the first time, sometimes you got to get a little used to it. Sure, so, sure. So why don't you... Do you want me to just ask the question again, and then we can kind of go through the motions? Let's of... do that. Let Chris prompt it with the question, and then uh, George and Matt can uh, give us the straight skinny on it. The, the first question that Paul and I came up with, and it was just kind of going through our conversations, like Paul said, was what methods do you suggest for speed matching Tsunami 2 and Tsunami 1? So that's a great question, Chris. Uh, you know, we can help you out there for sure. A uh, couple things to point out, too, with the new Tsunami 2 digital sound decoders, and for that matter, uh, the Economy line as well of our uh, value-based sound decoders. Uh, they're equipped with HyperDrive 2 motor control, which is a much finer motor control algorithm resulting in uh, much more uh, finer resolution at lower speeds, meaning 
slower uh-huh. starts, no more jackrabbit starts. Uh, you've seen that, I'm sure. I'm sure, Paul, as you've been doing the install, too, you've noticed that. And uh, the, the biggest thing, too, is then how do you tune that motor control to match the original Tsunami motor control, which is a little bit uh, a little bit different in some senses there, especially at lower speeds. Uh, we've got a couple different ways we can do that. For starters, uh, Chris, in the Athern models, uh, we've preloaded some speed curves in there for the end user uh, to take those curves in CVs 67 through 93 there and use them to match the actual uh, original Tsunami speed curve, so to speak. Now, it's going to vary by every model. Every motor's a little bit different. Every gear train's a little bit different. Some are more broken than others, so it may require some fine-tuning. But uh, if you look at those CVs that I mentioned earlier within the uh, original uh, Economy and Tsunami 2 products that we're doing for Genesis and RTR series, you'll see that we've got a speed curve in there to match Tsunami 1. Um, now, that really doesn't help the uh, the aftermarket customer, we'll say that, but they could use those values if they have an Atherin locomotive, and all those values uh, are available on our website as well. We've got various links to the Atherin documentation for their locomotives and any other OEM production, uh, what we call OEM, any other factory-installed production run we've ever done. So those values are available on the website. Another big one, too, that really is helpful for speed matching, and this is new in our sound decoder line in the Economy and the Tsunami 2 line, is uh, CVs 5 and 6, and what we call our max voltage and our mid-range voltage CVs. Um, and you can use CVs 2, 5, and 6, 2 being the uh, start voltage, and adjust those to create a custom three-point speed curve. Uh, 5 is the high voltage there, so if you've got a locomotive uh, that's got a Tsunami 2 that's not quite, uh, or excuse me, that's running faster than original Tsunami, you can drop that CV5 value down. Um, and if you've got a uh, midpoint voltage, you can use CV6 there as well to create a custom three-point curve to match your Tsunami 2 locomotive with the original Tsunami installation. Now, once again, every model is different, so if you have a value that works in one model, say an Atherin Jeep 7, and you've got a Walther's E unit, it's probably not going to have the same values in there, especially once you start dealing with different gear ratios and such. Uh, but speed matching is something that can be done uh, from the old Tsunami product to the new Tsunami 2 and Economy products using CVs 2, 5, and 6. But I will add, for best results, upgrade to Tsunami 2. <laughs> right. Okay. This, this is the audio engineer and product development engineer talking, and George is our wonderful sales uh, representative here. So, of course, Tsunami 2, always Tsunami 2. All right. Okay. Well, you know, every model different, so that, that's kind of the basis of EMD, you know. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, I like that it's the idea of the uh, custom curves for the Atherin units. The second unit I installed was not an Atherin. The first one was an Atherin Genesis. second one was a uh, late-run proto. Sure. And these babies will not be MU'd together. (laughs) (laughs) If played around with, my next step would be getting a digital speedometer and then doing a speed table on it. But it's just a difference in the motor. I will say one little tip and trick there is that you only actually need to take two speed curves if you're using a digital speedometer. And you can use CVs 5 and 6. So turn the throttle up to 126 or 128 speed steps there, full throttle, take a reading, and take one at half of that uh, and then also at a baseline. You know zero is going to be zero on all the time. So if you take those two readings, you can use that data and uh, adjust CVs 5 and 6 accordingly, and you'll actually get the same results. You won't have to go at every speed step. Hi. Good. Thank you. I'll try yeah. that. Yeah. That, that's, that's a good pointer there, Matt. Thank you for that. Of course, guys. Yeah, I'm happy to help. So, Matt, c- could you, just for giggles, tell me what CVs we have to change to use the um, – the the tsunami one speed curve on the tsunami two for an Atherin locomotive. 
That, that's another great question, Chris. Uh, so you'll have to adjust CV29, which is our configuration CV, to enable speed tables. And uh, you'll also have to adjust CV25 as well. Um, and that's you'll have to use the set to get to the custom speed curve, which is programmed in there. And uh, George, I think that's 16? 16. There you go. George, our tech guy here too. So 16 on that in CV25, uh, as well as enabling the speed table bits in CV29 will give you that Athern, custom Athern Tsunami 1 speed curve in your Tsunami 2s or your Economies. Excellent. That, that's, a, that's great. And, you know, one thing to point out, the CV29 uh, value will vary based on five different factors. And, I, and so I always hesitate to give a value for CV29 because... If you program one wrong or, or slightly off by, even by one, sometimes your, your locomotive will behave a lot differently than what you expect. So right. in our user's guide, we actually have a, a full-page chart that breaks down each of the five questions as yes and no questions that you can uh, work your way from left to right on the chart. And the, and the final column in the right is a final CV value that you'll program into CV29. Okay. That's great. That's great. I think that really wraps up question one pretty darn okay. well. Let's move on to question number two. All right. Are the sound files the same as Tsunami one? So, Chris, that's a good one. I'll field that one uh, as the audio engineer here at Soundtracks. And, and the answer to that one is definitely not. Uh, we've increased the resolution slightly on the Tsunami 2 product and the Economy products. And we've also offered more in the Tsunami 2 product line than we've ever offered before in the original Tsunami product line. Uh, we're talking about the total number of choices in sounds, up to 42 air horns, 63 steam whistles, 9 prime movers, and up to uh, 10 chuffs, up to 9 prime movers, I should say, and 10 chuffs on our steam decoder. So uh, a lot of the uh, offerings on the decoder line now, specifically the Tsunami 2, again, have never been offered in our aftermarket product line. Uh, and I'll, Chris, I'll give you a quick plug for Atherin here, and, and you can help me out with this one, but uh, there's plenty of new prime movers on all of those Atherin Genesis Tsunami 2 equipped locomotives that uh, the end customer has never seen before. There's another version of the 16-cylinder 567 non-turbo on those that we really like, uh, and we've got a couple others on there too. Uh, check our website for more details on that and all the Atherin documentation as well. So the sound files have all been uh, remastered in many ways. Uh, we've increased the volume of the horn quite a bit on many of the recordings. We've oh, also yeah. upped it. Yeah, that's the other amazing thing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, the horn's quite a bit louder. The prime mover's quite a bit louder, too, in there. And you're going to hear a little bit better resolution in the sound quality. But there's a lot of upgrades that have been done to the sounds, too. For example, one of the biggest ones that I notice, um, I'm a diesel modeler myself, as we've talked about in the past, but... I've been having a lot of fun doing the steam engines and the, the steam engine, for example, the rod clank from the previous generation to the Tsunami 2 has much improved and really, in my opinion, gives a much more uh, uh, in-depth feel that I'm actually running and listening to a steam engine as opposed to uh, previous generations. So there's a lot of subtle upgrades like that that may not be immediately evident. Yeah, and it's not necessarily an extra feature or an extra box, but we've gone through and we've uh, remastered all the recordings for the dynamic brake sounds as well. There's new recordings for that in the diesel modelers. All the air brake sounds and the uh, diesel and steam Tsunami 2 uh, decoders are all brand new, both the independent and the automatic brake apply and release. Uh, a whole bunch of new sounds, and they're little things that you don't think of uh, have all been remastered and, and are far brighter than the original Tsunami product. And uh, in some cases, most cases, actually brand new recordings, too, that are uh, we think are a little bit better. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the things that, since we're talking about new prime mover sounds, strategically, as far as Athern, uh, we've been working with Soundtracks, Matt, George over there, uh, 
what we've been trying to do is strategically put some good prime mover sounds for the right locomotive. So, for example, the new SDP40F coming out, we're loading on a bunch of appropriate prime mover sounds, more than just one. There will be, what, about four or five? On uh, the STP40F, we'll have, I'd have to look at my numbers again, but there's at least three on there, Chris, that are uh, mm-hmm. uh, 645 type prime movers of the turbo variety for that. What's the differentiation between the uh, versions? Well, hey, Paul, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. They're all unique recordings, each locomotive, uh, we, and again, some that we've never released before. Um, so we've had our classic 645 turbo sound, what we call our 645 second generation turbo in our sound roster for quite a while now. And since that prime mover has been released to the public, we've recorded other versions of that prime mover on different locomotives. So we finally had a chance to do some editing and some mastering in the studio. I guess I should say I finally had a chance to do that. And uh, we were able to get those into some of the other Tsunami 2 products uh, to keep it interesting and different for those users. And Chris, you can help me with this one. Where that's really helpful is that you can have an A unit, so to speak, uh, in an F unit consist that has one prime mover sound. And then the B unit from that same production run, you can change one CV, CV 123, and get a totally different 16-cylinder 567 sound for some variety on there as well. Uh, same thing's going to apply to the new SDP uh, 40F locomotive. It's going to have, like I said, a couple different 645s on there, at least three different 645s on that prime mover set. Right. And, and one of the things that my mind has always been, as far as like Athern is concerned, is like you, you take most road diesels and their service life is more commonly experienced in in like an MU type situation. So it it was important in my mind, if you're going to have an ABBA of F units to be able to kind of like mix up the prime movers a little bit so you can sort of handle some of the phasing and kind of minimize that as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, the big one there, too, is that, you know, you have a locomotive that's fresh out of rebuild. It sounds one way. Uh, You have a locomotive that's been in service for 20 years and still has the original power assemblies on the prime mover. And you're going to have a very different, distinct sound for that. So I'm glad we were able to get those prime movers on the uh, the Athern series of Tsunami 2 digital sound decoders. And uh, uh, I'm hoping your users and our users, our joint customers, are really enjoying those. Very good. I am. (laughs) (laughs) i'll tell you that chris as a former locomotive engineer myself i I get that all the time well what locomotive were you on today Uh, what prime mover did it have in it i goes well it depends when it came out of rebuild and what version it is and how many different varieties there is so so the more we can give to our customers the happier that makes everybody sure well let's move on to question number three cool and this is a good one to kind of like come after the 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 sound experience and uh you know, the sound files that you've been loading onto the new Tsunami 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that Paul noticed was the volume that were that was coming out of the Tsunami 2. And the question is, what's going on with the preamp? Is it, is it different than the Tsunami 1? Uh, yeah, quite a bit different, I'll say that. The circuit design, the amplifier, the files, the way we're processing all that information has all been significantly changed on the Tsunami 2 design to give you that louder and more full-sounding effect that you would hear from the prototype. Uh, One of the best examples is the air horn, or steam whistle for that matter. One of the complaints we would get with the original Tsunami product was that the air horn was just simply too quiet. And for better or for worse, there there was some of the complaints that we were getting. Uh, We resolved that problem in the Tsunami 2 line, uh, again, in a couple different ways. Uh, Remastering some of the files was helpful. And then we also completely redesigned the audio uh, circuit on that uh, decoder. You went from a 1-watt amplifier on the original Tsunami design to a 2-watt amplifier on the higher-powered Tsunami 2 designs. So, uh, for instance, our PNP-type decoder, uh, TSU-PNP, our TSU-2200, 
And uh, those two decoders have a 2-watt amplifier on them as well as our TSU 21-pin NEM, 21 NEM decoder there. And once you get up into the big scales, there are the 4400 decoder, which should be coming out here very shortly uh, for O scale, for S scale, and even some G scale here. It gets all the way up to a 3-watt design on it. So a very powerful amplifier and preamplifier circuitry on there. And again, the way we're handling the files, and we've added them, taken them from the computer and put them onto the decoder here at the factory, loaded them into your aftermarket products is very different as well to get you that increased volume uh, and that uh, better overall sound. Uh, we've also, and it's a little, little, little bit of a win here for us, we've also made the reverb effect a little bit better in the Tsunami 2 product. Uh, we've given you the option to configure channels of reverb independently uh, from the whistle, from the bell, uh, and we've also given you basically doubled the amount of reverb you can put on there. So if you're really going for that inner city running, running in between the buildings effect or uh, what we generally call the space train effect, you can put quite a bit of reverb on the air horn, prime mover bell. Uh, for that matter, even the toilet flush on the Tsunami 2, you can put reverb on there. Oh, yeah, and I was waiting for that one. So. <laughs> <laughs> just, just what I've always wanted. you got to have it. <laughs> you know, Matt, the, i I got to ask, too, does yeah. the economy benefit from the new uh, preamp that you've been using in the Tsunami 2? It absolutely, great question. It absolutely does, Chris. Uh, the, the foundation for the Tsunami 2 product line uh, was built with our Economy product. Uh, all those same wonderful audio amp features and, and preamp design that I'm telling you about in the Tsunami 2 apply to the Economy as well. The only drawback to the Economy product, uh, and it is a bit of a differentiator, I shouldn't call it a drawback, is that it does not have a reverb effect on the Economy product. So uh, if you want that wonderful kind of echo sound, uh, what we call a reverb effect, uh, you go by the Tsunami 2 decoder. Okay, now one of the and I've noticed this with the increased fidelity, the sound pressure levels being substantially higher. I've had to go in on these two upgrades I've done and change out speakers. Yeah, we, we have found quite a bit of that. Um, and that is something that we do make uh, basically uh, readily apparent on our website, uh, on all of our product information. Uh, we've gotten big red uh, italicized letters saying that please choose a properly rated speaker for these decoders. Um, a lot of the older factory equipped models only come with speakers rated up to one watt. Yeah. In some cases, even below that. Um, and there's plenty of aftermarket speakers, too, out on the market right now. They're only rated at 1 to 1.5 watts as well. Uh, so definitely, if you're upgrading from an original Tsunami decoder, or in most cases, any other decoder on the market there, uh, because of the new powerful amplifier on the Tsunami 2 and the Economy lines, you may have to replace that speaker. Um, and we definitely recommend that you test the speaker uh, with the decoder. If you start to hear any distortion with our new decoders, uh, usually that's a sign of the speaker being overdriven or if the speaker... Yeah. Yes. That's the heat up. Yeah, definitely. Then, then you're going to have to replace it for sure if you're not sure of the rating on it. And it makes you pay attention to not just the prime mover, but things like radiator fans, air pump. Oh, yeah. They are throwing their frequencies and their power into that mix. And I SDP45, I thought, where am I getting this drumming sound? Sure. Because I put three speakers in it, series parallel, and it tweaked them on the uh, graphic equalizer. And then I listened to it as it ran and I went, oh, yeah, I need to pay attention. It was the air compressor. Oh, um, sure. Because whatever the factory default was, I had not changed it. So I just very quickly went into that CV after I thumbed through the 80-page manual that I printed <laughs> off <laughs> and found it and curtailed that sound a little bit. And all of a sudden... I could get the effect of the uh, of the fans, the compressor, and all that without any kind of resonance coming sure. out of the shell or anything. So sure. yeah, you got to match the speakers, but that's a good thing. Definitely, yeah. 
Yeah, well, and you know, I'll, I'll speak to that eighty-page manual. Uh, it is, yeah, it's very comprehensive. And as as the person who who edits and and wrote some of it, I can tell you, it's all of the information is there. Uh, now we do have some quicker references for you, though, Paul and, and Chris, uh, on the packaging for the decoder itself. The most popular CVs are all listed on the packaging there. Um, so if you need to change an air horn or select an air horn or change the volume of uh, the master volume, say, in the decoder, that's yeah. all right on the packaging for you. Now, when you get into the, the nitty gritty stuff and configuring all the wonderful features you do have to bust out the manual. The good news is that if you're using it on a uh, PDF, uh, like an Adobe Reader or something like that, it is searchable. So you can type in air compressor and it'll pop up every time it sees air compressor and you can find the appropriate CV. Good tip. Yeah, good indeed. Tip. <laughs> a good tip. <laughs> because, you know, so so many times it's just like, you know, I, I, I bring along the, the paper printed version of it. And sure. I'm usually uh, hanging over a programming track at the run, you know. <laughs> so. Sure, sure. I can speak to that. I've done it. I've been on my phone. The modern equivalent of that to these days is uh, get the phone out, look at the manual, see what we can do. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully right. I got Wi-Fi. <laughs> so. Right. Well, the, the next question up is actually a kudos from Paul about the adjustable brightness on the FX pads. I'm going to let him take that one over. I like that because I everything I do is LEDs. And on the Tsunami 1, some of the – and I'm just using mainly 0402s. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, a 1.8 millimeter on an F unit will lend itself. And people will comment, boy, that's a bright headlight. You have just – cured that problem with the CV that allows me to dial down the brightness. Excellent. I'm very, very happy with that. Well, that's fantastic to hear because I'm a lighting guy myself. Uh, Chris has seen my uh, Athern Challenger that I upgraded and retrofitted, and I put eight different lighting functions on there across two decoders into into the model to make sure I could light up everything. And that was something I was really pushing for was the ability to have those lighting effects because nothing's more frustrating when you're trying to do an installation and you're trying to get a, achieve a certain brilliance like you're talking about with the 0402s they're extremely bright comparatively speaking to like a three millimeter led and yeah. so what was happening is you would end up having to try different value resistors before you determined the right brilliance and sometimes you could get up to the 3.3k or even a 4k uh, resistor value before you got that brilliance that you were looking for, and this was something that we that I was really wanting to push for. So we added in uh, CV sixty one and sixty two, which allow you to adjust the brilliance of a constant dim lighting uh, hyperlight effect A and B. And then we've also added in CV sixty three, so you can adjust the brilliance of the uh, dimming. Yes. So when you hit the F seven. But then CV64 was something I really pushed for, uh, which is you're talking about is the overall brightness for all of the lights. And and part of the reason was because I've been to layouts where, uh, and Chris, we've had this conversation where you get, you know, we you've got oh, yeah. those small LEDs uh, nicknamed retina burners. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, they're, they're very, very bright. You know, I kind of agree a little bit with Chris in, in that fact is because they're too bright in some cases. But there are people out there that absolutely love that super brilliance. and They love a migraine headache, George. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And, and this is where the adjustability came in was because we wanted to be able to have a feature that allowed the guys who want the super bright LEDs to, to light up the room 
versus the guys who want the, the little bit more subdued lighting effect, you know, and, and be able to do that without having to sit there and calculate resistors or test resistors every time. And so I really, I was really pushing for that. And, and this was, this was the way we made it work with the CB64. And so that gives you the ability to have that, that adjustable brilliance. So I've been real happy with that and, and have been using that quite a bit on my own stuff. Hey, George, I'll jump in here and say that I use the uh, brightness registers 61 and 62. I'm a steam modeler primarily. I use 61 uh, on like a marker lamp effect. Okay. Uh, marker lights, you know, oil burning marker lights are so much dimmer, dimmer than that of a 32 volt headlight or 30 volt headlight bulb in, in a steam locomotive. So it's a great way to kind of dim down those, those 0402 resistors um, and uh, it really gives you some effect. You can do the same thing on diesels with number board lights. That's a really popular class one. Lights. We see class lights. Yeah, class lights. There's another good one. Ground lights. So, yeah. Ground yeah. Lights. Oh, yeah. yeah. Truck lights and step lights. Got to have them. <laughs> yep. Okay. What's next, Chris? Well, I want to interject here real quickly. Okay. And say we, we, we put all those wonderful brilliance and brightness registers and adjustments in there, guys. But you still, if you're using an LED oh. or if you're using a 1.5 volt bulb on anything but our PNP decoder, you still need to put some amount of resistance in line there. Uh, the CV change does not affect the output voltage. You're still going to get the 12 and a half volts roughly in HO scale coming off the decoder. So you still need to put at least a 1K ohm resistor in there for LEDs. Uh, if you're using bulbs, it's going to depend on the, uh, uh, the the voltage rating and the milliamp draw of the bulb. But you still need the proper resistor value in there. However, you can get close. You don't have to be exact. This gives you that ability to tune it exactly and give you that overall effect. So still need resistors, but you can tune it from there. So it's PWM. It, yeah. it is PWM driven um, and a pulse wave modulation output uh, for the headlights uh, and all the lighting effects on the decoder. That's pretty standard across the industry. Uh, pretty much everybody's using that to drive it uh, and use all those wonderful great lighting effects that you see, our hyperlight effects. Thanks. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, George. Just got you there. <laughs> Paul, it sounded like you had something to kind of throw in on there. No, that's, uh, I was going to say, that's why I always liked your uh, BWM. 1000 Tsunami 1 mm -hmm. because it had built-in LED resistance. So it's one less solder joint, one less shrink tube thing. Yep. Especially if you're doing like 567 uh, F units and GP9s. That's okay. There's enough good with this new decoder that I'll buy some uh, resistors. Not a problem. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Whatever sacrifice I can make. All right. Question number five is what do driven functions do and what would be a practical application? We're also looking for upside and downsides. Well, I'll feel, I'll feel this one. Um, basically, what the driven functions allow us to do is to enable lighting effects or sound effects or uh, other uh, logical effects based on what the locomotive is doing. So if you're moving forward, then you can have certain effects take place. If you're moving reverse, you can have certain effects take place. And same thing when you're stopped. Um, and these are in CVs 1.385 through 1.512. And basically, you have four conditions that a decoder can exist in. And that's moving forward, moving in the forward direction, stopped while in forward direction, moving while reverse, and stopped while in the reverse direction. And you can enable certain lighting or sound effects. So like, say, for example, if every time you're moving in the forward direction, you want to have your ditch lights come on automatically, you can set that up in those CVs where as soon as you start to move forward, you can turn on the FX3 and the FX4 together to turn on the ditch lights. And then when you would blow the horn, they would do their alternating flashing. And that would be the hyperlight effect part of that. But where this comes in really handy, there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, 
is going back to a steam locomotive, for example, if you illuminate the firebox with a firebox flicker, it's not really something that you turn on a light. And so what you can do is you can have this particular lighting effect existing in all four of those conditions so that anytime track power is applied, you have firebox flicker automatically come on, but it's not something you have to consciously go in and go, oh, wait, I have to turn this function button on. And so that's where it's really beneficial. The other side of that you can do is uh, whistle signals. So you can have forward whistle signal will trigger when you start to move in the forward direction. So you'll get that two blasts of the whistle. Same thing in reverse for the reverse whistle signal. You can get that three short blasts as you move in reverse. And then, of course, in both cases, whether you're moving in forward or reverse with the stop whistle signal, as soon as your locomotive comes to a stop, it'll play that, play that single short note of the uh, whistle that, that lets you know that you're stopped. A couple of things we have implemented in this to help make it a little bit more realistic is we've added in what's called a deadband CV, and that's in CV216, where you can put the decoder into speed step one, but the deadband prevents it from moving until you move to, in this case, we'll say speed step two or three, whatever you set the CV value to. And so what it basically will do will give you an ability to move your decoder forward in speed step one, trigger the whistle signal before you move, and then you can increase the throttle up and again. The other side of that is you can use that in the diesel, for example, to load up the diesel prime mover with the dead band to give it a chance to start notching up before you start to move. And then you can go to speed step two or three or wherever, and then your locomotive will start to move. But getting back into the, the driven functions, um, you know, so things like the like we talked about, the lighting effects, uh, you can have. For example, when you come to a stop, you can have certain sound effects play, take place, like the uh, brakes or something like that. You can dim the headlight when you come to a stop uh, by enabling the dim, uh, the dimmer feature. But also, the last aspect to this, to those CVs we have, is an e-stop. And you can map sound effects and or lighting effects to the e-stop button. So in some DCC systems, when you're running, if you hit the e-stop the first time, it shuts down, it sends a stop command to your locomotive. So everybody else isn't affected. And so this is where the red light on the nose of like, say, the E-units where you had that red emergency light. And we've also got the air dump sound. So the sound of the engineer dumping the air to stop the train, you know, mapped to that function, or in this case, the e-stop button. And that's where it kind of really comes to shine is you can really get a little bit more operational aspects out of running them using those those driven uh, functions. And all it's doing is overriding or, or automatically turning on the effect. So like say for example, if you have the headlight automatically come on when you're moving in the forward direction, you don't necessarily have to push the zero, but it will override it. So if you forget to and you start to move, it'll automatically tur turn on the headlight. But like I said, if, if you, you can't, if you're still moving in forward, you can't hit the F0 and turn it off because it's saying that in the forward driving condition or in the driving state, you're going to have that light on all the time. So that's kind of how it works. So the, the downside is, is you can't override it with a function button, but the upside is, is it gives you a little bit more flexibility as far as operating the, the decoder. And hey, Chris, I know, that, I know that Atherin on their Genesis series locomotives they're using Tsunami 2 has used the uh, brake release sound effect uh, to be mapped to a driven state. So the moment you go from speed step zero to speed step one, you hear that proto sound of the brake release occur. So kind of a neat feature, way to automate it and add some more uh, sound automatic effects to your decoder as a whole. 
You, you know, just one thing to add on top of that, Matt, is uh, you can also change it to the train brake. Indeed. It doesn't yeah. always have to be the independent brake. You know, if you're switching and stuff, you just leave the independent brake on. But if you're out on the road, you can, uh, I think it's 10. You hit 10 uh, and then and then uh, it, it changes it from, a, you know, to the regular independent brake to a train brake. I, I think it's F12, Chris, but I, I'll is double it 12? check that. I think it's 12. It's, it's, it's I F11. think you're right. Yeah, F11 is our what we call our braking, you know, apply and release. And then uh, F12, uh, which I think Gavin has carried on as well, is our uh, brake select CV and our train line that's charge it. feature. So that's, F12. that's the one. Yes. So when F- Thank when you. F12, yeah, you got it. When F12 is on, you're an automatic. When it's off, you're an independent. Yeah, it, it's a pretty neat thing, too, especially when you have a train in tow. It, it kind of changes the dynamics of uh, running a train and starting it up. Uh, you know, it kind of gives it a big, a little bit more of a massive feel. You know, and that's exactly what we're going for. So I'm glad you guys like it. <laughs> yeah. You have anything else to throw in there, Paul? Nope. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Awful quiet, Paul. Awful quiet. <laughs> I'm making notes here, guys. I'm making notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Glad to see you're still with us. <laughs> All right. So number six. What are the DDE default values? And Paul, maybe you can take it away from here about uh, the reason why you were looking for the, the DDE defaults. Okay, so when I went through the DDE, again, pages 52, 53, I think, and part of 54 in the manual. So I was following the steps, you know, what is it, 31 to this value to get to the right index. And so I was reading right off the sheet, you know, speed step one, put this in, bounce up to about 25 to 40, put this value in. Yep. Mm-hmm. And what I thought would have been helpful would have been as a start in CV, like, say, the attack uh, utility there, try this value, some kind of guidance. Same thing on the volume. How much is the volume going to increase? How much is it going to decline? Because when I first got going, I had the locomotive, you know, it determined its load, it had set up, and the operation, just it moving around and stuff was just almost near perfect, just getting started. It took me a while to dial in the sound because it would instantly roar up and then instantly drop down. It was just on, off. And so I actually took everything to zero because I didn't know what the uh, defaults were, couldn't find it. And then I reread the, uh, you know, values from here to here will retard the sound or attenuate the sound and this will amplify it. So I just picked medium values on those ranges and ran the train and went, okay, making headway. So then I would go in and cut this CV down a little bit. After about an hour of doing this, I had this SDP45 just doing what it should do, very prototypical. So I thought it would be helpful, especially since it's a download document. If there were, even if it's parenthetic, you might try... Sure. On a genesis, I mean, you could mention brand names, just if this, try an initial value here and here. And just as it would save some time, because at the first, I had no idea. And I've got a small railroad here in the house. It's only got a 2% grade. And it's pretty good. <laughs> well, but it's only, this room's only 13 by 14 feet. So it's half oh, okay. the room is going up and half of it's coming down. And so... It's not that big of a deal, but your DDE, when it senses that load, when that STP-45 had 10 cars behind it, 
and it started lugging down and then the, the volume came up and then it would get to that coast mode and the volume would back off. It, it was like rail fanning on the side of a of a, a real railroad. So, I mean, I congratulate you on the engineering behind it. Well, thanks, Paul. We're, we're patting ourselves on the back over here, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but if there could be for the, for the dummies like me, some little, like I said, even if it's parenthetic, Cheat sheet suggestions. Try, you know, here's a good median value to start from and tune from that. Which you do say if you find it necessary to to tune the load parameters, go to 512. Okay, and do and do what? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So so the big thing is, uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Paul, there are a lot of models out there. So it's kind of hard for us to test with everything. We test with quite oh, a I bit. Oh, I know, I um, know. And that's a great suggestion. Uh, again, as the person who kind of uh, reviews the manuals and such and, and helps to write them, I'll, I'll definitely put that on our list of added suggestions. Uh, we, uh, as we get more products out into the hands of our customers, uh, we're asking some customers for feedbacks too. Uh, for, excuse me, more feedback to say, hey, what okay. worked for you? What worked? Uh, you know, what locomotives did you have? What locomotives are you using? What values worked for you? Um, now, the basic, the two big ones with the DDE, there are obviously uh, five twelve for the sensitivity as a whole, and then uh, five eleven for your throttle sensitivity 512 for the motor load based 511 for the throttle sensitivity i'm going to kick it over to george he, he wants to add something in here too as far as the rest of it kind of how to configure it and what you can do for it sure well 512 as he mentioned is sensitivity and i just want to kind of go over the lower the number the less sensitive it is and so if it's defaulted at zero uh on all diesel decoders off right out of the package because we, when we were doing testing, as we mentioned, we, we can't have everything, but we had a pretty good range. We had a, uh, one of the Kato P42s that had those cordless motors in it. And then we also had some uh, Bachmann uh, standard line stuff that we were able to test with. And we found when we did the calibration through CVs 2.503 and 2.504, we found a wide range of different values that are coming. So what would happen is if we programmed one with the other's settings – we got a, a less than ideal operational scenario and it didn't feel like it was giving us what we wanted. And so that's why we defaulted the dynamic digital exhaust off on the diesel Okay, is to give you the ability to go in and calibrate it for your locomotive. But as you mentioned, fine tuning is kind of the key here where you want to determine what's best for you. And so that's where the sensitivity comes into play so that you can kind of go in and determine how sensitive you want it to changes. Uh, so like, say, for example, in a small railroad like yours, where you're pulling uh, maybe, you know, 10 to 15 cars, maybe tops, you don't want it to be uh, super sensitive because what will happen is as you encounter that grade, if you're only pulling, say, uh, you know, 10 cars and you've got the sensitivity real high, you're going to be in notch eight before you're halfway up the hill. And same thing, vice versa, where if you have the sensitivity really low and you're pulling a heavier train, like say in a club environment where you're pulling 20, 30 cars, uh, you're going to have a whole lot different experience. It may not notch up much at all because you've got the sensitivity so low. So you kind of have to look at the locomotive, uh, what it's determined operation is for and kind of determine the sensitivity for yourself. Um, I kind of, on my stuff, I tend to use the sensitivity around the same value so I get consistent results so I can MU uh, any locomotives with each other and still get a, uh, a consistent response out of it. And then, uh, but like you kind of mentioned, you talked about the volume levels and you can determine the intensity and how much or how much the decibels change uh, in CVs 2.507 and 2.508. And you can determine, 
you know, zero to two fifty five gives you a, a plus or minus twelve decibel uh, level on low limit and high limit, and it'll determine that percentage of change. So if you don't want it to change too much, then you can reduce the values in CVs 2.507, 2.508 to fit your needs. Like I said, there, there's so many different perceptions out there, and what you what you may see is different than what I see. And even Matt sitting here next to me, we may be looking at the same thing and have different perceptions. I'm always looking at stuff with different perceptions. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little different. But, so uh, so hey. there is that that's kind of into that factor. So there, it gives you a little bit of, of ability to do it. Um, one of the things we did with the steam decoder, though, is we do have it active to give you some semblance of DDE right out of the package, since most, especially in a steam engine, most cases you're running one at a time. So you get a little bit better of an experience right out of the package, but we do recommend you calibrate still. And everybody forgets about our electric decoder, too, in the Tsunami 2 line. Uh, we've got dynamic digital exhaust on our traction motor effects in the electric decoder. Uh, yes, we do have a decoder for electric models out there. It's all over our website there, too. So uh, don't want to leave those guys behind or think that we're not thinking about them. But uh, dynamic digital exhaust on the electric uh, decoder as well regulates the prime, excuse me, the traction motor sound effect volume. It doesn't change the actual uh, uh, RPM of the traction motors because that would be impractical and also not prototypical, but it does uh, regulate the volume associated with the traction motors. And hey, Paul, just to give you a heads up too, sure. if you look in our tech reference, what we call our technical reference for the Tsunami 2 and the Economy product line, for that matter, all the way back to this original Tsunami product line, all of the default CV values are located on the bottom of the page associated with that CV. So uh, so I've got, just to give you some heads ups, if you can find them, you, anybody else you. out there who might be uh, confused or not be able to locate them. If you're looking at the user's manual, it is a little bit tough to locate in there, the default values, but check out our tech reference. So for instance, uh, 2.512 DDE load sensitivity on the uh, diesel technical reference is set to zero, and that's on page 130. Yeah, page 130. <laughs> in context of your, your guys' comment, because of the wide variety of manufacturers how the motors between a okay a proto a Genesis a Bachmann oh yeah the second locomotive I did once I was happy with the Genesis what's that proto E unit and it does have different values but I mimicked the values on the Genesis mm -hmm. as my starting point and it saved me time mm -hmm. and that's and that's really what the best thing that we recommend is if you get a set of values that works uh, for one particular brand of locomotive or one release of locomotives, there's a greater than zero chance that you're going to be very close with the other manufacturers' locomotives that may use that same motor or drive. You know, again, there's countless combinations of drives and motors out there, so oh, you yeah. can't just throw out two or three numbers that'll work for you. But uh, if you do find some numbers that work in, in those CVs, uh, 509, 510, 512, 511, whatever, 2.511 to 512, uh, write them down. Jot them down on, on a piece of paper and use it as a starting point or save the roster profile in JMRI and use that as a starting point too. I just write them on the inside of my hand so when I'm doing I can look okay. I've got to go. <laughs> Yeah, I just can't, I can't wash my hands the rest of the day. But I was going to say, well, you know. <laughs> well, and, and real quick, I just wanted to kind of touch on this too, since we're talking about the DDE. Yes. Uh, the calibration for each individual locomotive, it, we tried to make it as easy as possible. Uh, you kind of alluded to it earlier where you're setting 2.503 when your locomotive is moving at speed step one to a value of 255, and the decoder will automatically calibrate the necessary CV value. And then you would do the same with 2.504. You set it to 255 while you're moving somewhere between speed step 20, uh, 30, or 40. Then the decoder will automatically calibrate and internal cre internally 
create kind of a power consumption chart to say, okay, this is a light locomotive on flat level track. This yeah. is what the motor takes to move it. And we do recommend you do this after it's been running for, you know, run it in circles or run it back and forth a little bit just to warm it up and get the grease kind of setting in to, so that it, you're not trying to do tight grease or, or the gears sure. are, you know, warmed up a little bit. And by setting those, the decoders internally creating that, and then you can use, like he talked about, use your settings in uh, 504 or 505, 506, and so on up to 512, you know, as your basis for all your other locomotives to make sure that you get a similar reaction out of them. And so that way you get that predictable and realistic response, response based on your perception and your, your experience and what you want your layout to do. Okay. And hey, I should mention not to not to hammer this DDE point home, but there's a couple of videos on our website too, going step by step. Soundtracks.com. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, we've got a few good ones up there. Uh, George George is featured in one of them, and you'll see my ugly mug in another one of them. Uh, going step by step through the process of calibrating dynamic digital exhaust. Uh, great little handy reference uh, for anybody out there. Uh, should let you know too that we, here at Soundtracks we're working to get some new videos up uh, every other week or so. We've we pushed a big video campaign. Uh, we realize that not everybody wants to read that 80 page manual um and the videos seem to be really helping quite a bit so everybody who's listening out there in the world uh, check out our videos page on the i think you ought website. to put it on ebooks i mean really yeah, you're we, under, under, put it on ebooks could do that too that's a very viable option <laughs> <laughs> well you know what matt we are going to totally hammer this dde thing into the ground here because i have two more questions <laughs> okay. hey we, we love it we think it's the biggest biggest differentiator between the old product uh, tsunami and the new product tsunami 2 and it's the biggest differentiator between economy and tsunami 2 so let's let's talk about it we love chatting about it okay well uh, the question number seven is what practices do you suggest for mu configurations with dde oh yeah yeah, this is one that, that as a diesel modeler myself, I tend to run two, three locomotive consists fairly regularly. So this yeah. was something that I wanted to make sure worked very well. And uh, uh, and I wasn't happy with some of the early earlier on attempts with the DDE. So we kept sending them back to the, the engineers, back to the drawing board until they got it right. And they, they adjusted the way the DDE processor works. And the most notable one, especially when it comes to consisting, first thing is your 2.512 uh, what you want to do is you want to set that relatively low. Um, I on, on most of my stuff, I think I'm somewhere around as far as the CV value on 2.512, somewhere around 25 to 30, uh, as opposed to going up to higher like 150 or 255. Um, so it's relatively low because it's, it is very reactive right out of the package. But the other thing that we've done is 2.509 and uh, where does it uh, 2.510 are a attack time and release time. And what these two CVs do is they determine how quickly the decoder responds to changes in what its perceived back EMF readings are. So especially in a consist, what will happen is you'll have two locomotives that may be slightly bucking a little bit. Maybe the coupler's pushing on one as they kind of go through a turnout or something like that. And what can happen is if you have your sensitivity high and you have your attack time low, uh, where it's a more quick response, what can happen is that pushing locomotive may notch up while the trailer by the one being pushed may notch down. Um, and so what we've done is we've given you a wider range in CV in those two CVs that is not necessarily a linear response time, but higher values will constitute a longer stop time. So the default value is somewhere around 215 or so like that, where it's, it equates to about a second of response time. So it's relatively quick. 
But in the in the grand scheme of things, if you get a buck slightly in your locomotive, the decoder's not going to instantly start notching up and down. So you get a more even keeled response from all three locomotives. Because um, yeah, consisting is one of the things. Like I said, that's one of the best parts about uh, diesel modeling is you can have more more power. You know, as Tim Thomas always said on Tool Time, oh, oh, more power. So more locomotives lined up together, it it kind of lends itself to be a little bit more of that. Uh, a possibility for one notching while it's trying to push the other one and the other one notching down and so this gives you a, a, a little bit more of a consistent effort to make sure that they're responding more evenly together as opposed to you know out of sync. I was going to say so your suggestion there to in 509510 is a default value or a baseline of like 215? That's the default value. And so if you find if you find your locomotive kind of notching up and down in the middle of the consist, you may want to increase that value so it takes a little longer for it to respond so that you'll get a little bit more of a, a even response time. Think of it as think of it as a delay period, Paul and, and Chris and everybody out there too that uh, the higher that value is, so if you go all the way up to 255, it'll never change. Uh it's constantly looking uh, saying, well, I'm just not going to change here. So, uh, if you push it up from say 215 to 225 or 235, even you're going to hear a very noticeable difference in the way the DDE responds in a consist. Okay. So try those try those two, 2.509 and 2.510 to help smooth out the response of a DDE uh, in uh, in a consist situation, uh, steam or diesel or electric for that matter. And then also you can drop the uh, value in 2.512, the sensitivity a little bit to help even everything out. You know, Matt, uh, I heard of this, and I thought you might take great interest in this. Uh, I had a gentleman over in Athern kind of messing around with the DDE side of Tsunami 2. Uh, okay. matched a bunch of ABBAs. Sure. Mm-hmm. And what he ended up doing was taking the motor outputs of all four locomotives and just wiring them together. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> and he was able to sync up the DDE perfectly <laughs> I bet it was, <laughs> it was. Yeah. it's amazing what happens when you put all four motors on uh, one, one set of outputs then i'll say that but uh that that's something <laughs> yeah yeah so so he, he just put everything together in a series on the motor outs and it was just you know he, he was able to to totally nail the dde and it was perfectly in sync across just, all four units just so long as he's not overtaxing the decoder i'm all for it <laughs> we'd like to he had functioning uh, MU cables between them, right? Indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd like to see you get a 27-point jumper in HO scale, though. Uh, we'll have to work on that a little bit. <laughs> Two-point two might, be, might be more than enough. <laughs> now, this kind of bleeds into number eight here. What configurations do you suggest for the new braking features along with the DDE? Because I remember being over at George's house. And one of the one of his switchers was set up with DDE and the the new braking features, and we were feathering the brakes to get it to you know spot cars, and it was a lot of fun messing around with those whole things. So, George, Matt, maybe you guys can kind of uh, give us a place to start on how to configure something like that. 
So I'll jump in here on this one, Chris and Paul. Uh, now, as I, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things we were doing as we developed this product is we wanted to make the end user experience uh, as much uh, prototypically as possible as correct as that of a real locomotive, uh, the actual one-to-one -one scale diesel or steam or electric locomotive. Uh, I've got a lot of experience running locomotives. Uh, prior before coming to Soundtracks, I worked for Amtrak and uh, BNSF Railway as a locomotive engineer, and I've got time on steam locomotives as well. So when we put all the braking features in there, we decided decided to go three different directions. Uh, we decided to have an independent brake, uh, or what we call the uh, locomotive brake, simply for a light engine or a light con system engines, uh, no cars behind you. And then we have the automatic brake, uh, which would imply that you have a train behind you or a train brake behind you. And then on diesel locomotives, we have the dynamic brake. Uh, this is the first time ever in the Tsunami 2 product for soundtracks that we've got a functioning dynamic brake. Uh, we have a low version of the dynamic brake or a low dynamic brake setting that just maintains your train speed and gives you a dynamic brake sound effect. And then when you go into the high dynamic brake mode by pressing F4 again, you go into the actual braking rate. So, uh, a couple CVs that we recommend uh, folks adjust here to get the best possible uh, effect with dynamic digital exhaust. And even if you're not using the dynamic di digital exhaust feature, this is uh, some good ideas. Uh, CVs 3 and CVs 4, the acceleration and deceleration CVs, uh, we recommend sending those to uh, higher values. So 3, we usually set to a value of uh, 75 and four we set to a value of 150 and this just gives you some weight some 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 artificial weights on the locomotive on the drawbar as we say uh that's going to be pushing the locomotive around you know so you're not dealing with 12 16 20 ounces in ho scale you're trying to simulate 12 16,000 tons in ho scale as well with all those different uh acceleration deceleration values so once you've got some okay. values in cvs three and four you can put some values in the braking rates uh the braking rates are cv 116 for dynamic braking, CV117 for independent, and CV118 for the train or the automatic brake. Now, we should mention, obviously, steam locomotives don't have dynamic braking, so CV116 isn't going to do anything for you in a steam locomotive or electric. <laughs> so, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Thought, so, uh, it, it's amazing. We've even thought of that. But anyway, so you can set CV117 to replicate that of a light engine, or what we call just a single locomotive running around. And Chris, this is what you're alluding to. So when, when F12 is off and you're in independent brake mode, the locomotive stops a little bit quicker. And you can use it to feather the brakes into a cut of cars, couple on, release the brakes and pull ahead. And as you're pulling that big cut of cars out, you can use the independent brake to stop if you're switching. So we recommend values, uh, you know, it depends Depends on how much you have in CV3 and CV4, CV117, the independent brake rate uh, will either subtract or add from that. So we recommend if you've got three, CV3 set to 75 and CV4 set to 150, we recommend that you set CV117 to somewhere between 225 and 235. And that'll give you a pretty quick response time, stop the locomotive fairly quickly replicating a light engine. Now, here's where the fun comes in. Uh, when you tie onto a cut of cars, and if you're in an operating session, you got the okay to leave from your yard master, you've got the train line pumped up by pressing F12. Um, you'll hear the uh, compressor kick in on the diesel locomotives and the steam locomotives. And on the diesel locomotives, you'll hear the uh, engine, the RPM, notch up a little bit to replicate the, uh, the engineer actually pulling out on the throttle to uh, increase the engine RPMs and get some more air into that train faster, running that air compressor faster. Uh, once you're in train brake mode, uh, you've got the automatic brakes to deal with on F11 there. And you'll hear the brake effects change. And you're going to actually uh, set CV118 to a slightly lower value than that of CV117. So if we've got 117 set between 225 and 235 there, we'd set 118 to somewhere in the 165 to 175 range, implying that it's going to take a little bit longer to slow that train now that you've got all that weight behind it. Uh, and then again, you'll also hear the sound effects change. 
uh, once you go into the automatic brake rate mode. Now, we're to, to bring it full circle and bring DDE in here, Dynamic Digital Exhaust. With Dynamic Digital Exhaust enabled, you can actually do some pretty cool prototypical braking features. Uh, when we ran trains, uh, uh, passenger trains there, we would stretch brake, meaning that the locomotive would be in power while we applied the brakes on the train and uh, keep all the, the slack between the couplers stretched nice and tight. And that prevented all the spilled coffee and angry passengers back there uh, when you didn't have all that drop barrel slack adjusting in the train. So anyway, you can do that with our products by keeping the throttle open, applying the automatic or the independent brake for that matter, and uh, actually pull against the train. You'll hear the application sound if you're in the automatic train brake mode there. And uh, you'll be able to pull the train to a stop. And you'll hear the engine RPMs actually increase slightly as you come to a stop there, which is fairly prototypical. You might start stretch braking on the prototype at notch two or notch three, and it's just before you come to a stop there, you pull out a little bit harder to keep everything stretched. So dynamic digital exhaust and the braking rates working together are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, we just posted a video on our, our Facebook page here uh, recently about that. Check out our Facebook page uh, showing off some of the uh, dynamic digital exhaust in action with our braking. So definitely worth looking at. That was from cool. our Maybe, maybe what we could do is uh, repost that video on the, on the hobbyist podcast page. Yeah, that'd be great. So our friends over at Tony's actually, uh, Tony's Train Exchange produced that one, so we can get in touch with them and see if they can uh, throw it up on the, the hobbyist page there for sure. Great. So a couple other things I wanted to add in. You would talk about braking, and uh, you know we've talked about this before. I model Missouri Pacific, which traditionally was a non-dynamic brake road. And I was reading some stuff on the MPHS website or I was reading it on one of the Mopac forums or something that they did a lot of stretch braking even with their heavy trains. But instead of being in just regular, you know, run six or, or run five or whatever, they were actually going all the way up to run eight and then applying the brakes to stretch the train out while the locomotive was pulling. They were using the train back. So one of the things that you can do to simulate that is if you use the F10 which is a straight to eight notching feature that we've got built into the decoders. You can hit the F10, your prime mover will notch all the way up to eight. Then you can apply your train brake and slow down to a stop. And then when you come to the stop, you can release your F10, cut your throttle, and your prime mover will drop down to idle. So that's one really cool thing that you can do. Um, kind of talking about dynamic brakes a little bit too, uh, the Missouri Pacific also had a lot of non-dynamic brake equipped locomotives. Um, and if for the, for, Purist Mopac guys that would have Mopac consists, it's probably not as big a deal. But if you have UP consists or, or SP consists where you have a mix of dynamic and non-dynamic brake-equipped locomotives, what's really kind of cool is one other feature we built to the dynamic braking is in CB114, and it will adjust what notch the prime mover goes into when you go into braking mode. Um, most EMDs, for example, when you would throw into dynamic brakes, it'll actually drop the prime mover down to idle because in most cases, it, you know, their logic was you're not going to use a lot of fuel if you're doing the braking. So they would drop the prime mover to idle and then rely on the dynamic brakes to then slow the train and keep it under control. And in CV114, you can adjust the prime mover to go to idle, notch four or notch eight. And depending on your prototype, it'll vary. So you'd set that in there. And where the non-dynamic brake-equipped locomotives come into play is when they're in a consist and you would apply your dynamic brakes, your non-dynamic brake-equipped locomotive isn't going to continue to pull against those dynamic brakes. And so what's going to happen is the prime mover is going to drop down to idle. But because there's no fans on a dynamic brake, what you can do is set the dynamic brake volume to zero 
and then you still implement those same braking rates like we talked like Matt talked about just a minute ago so your locomotive is going to behave prototypically in a consist or with a group even if you apply dynamic brakes and you're not going to have a locomotive fighting against other locomotives in the consist because they're all going to be set to do the same but you get a more prototypical and realistic response out of your consist absolutely Hey, kudos to you, Chris, for picking that out on the Iron Genesis uh, Quips and Obby 2 stuff. You guys uh, have a set 114 to drop it to idle from the factory. Mm-hmm. Way cool. Right. Uh, it's awesome. It also gives you that kind of straight, straight to idle effect, too, on those uh, non-dynamic brake-equipped engines. Yes, wow. we do. Excellent. Yeah. So we break down between dynamic and non-dynamic brake stuff on Athern Genesis. And it kind of – this is a good segue into the next part because – when, when you're dynamic braking and you have dynamic and non-dynamic, and it doesn't really matter, but if you're in an advanced consist, you want to be able f- those dynamics to all turn on at the same time. Mm-hmm. So question number nine is, what advanced consisting CVs do you suggest to have respond to consist address? Well, this is something I talk about a lot when I do clinics on the road. This is George Topics of of most great interest here, guys. He loves talking about advanced consists. So here we go. The the biggest thing, the first thing, in in my opinion anyway, consisting just in general is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts when it comes to DCC and model train operation. Um, Because there's so many different ways of doing it. And what's happened in a lot of cases is you'll have one particular a club member or a couple of, or a group in a particular area that's figured out one way to make multiple locomotives run together and so because they figured that out that's that's how they tell everybody and everybody in that particular group or 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 friends network tend to all do it the same way and so the problem is there's a whole bunch of different ways to do it and the DCC systems each slightly have their own variation way of doing it the only consistent method is, as you mentioned, advanced consisting. And what's happened is, is, is there seems to be a lot of, of hesitation because you'll hear people uh, realize that they're programming a CV and then they kind of, oh, wait, I don't want to break it. And so they kind of shy away a little bit from it. And so the good news is, is you can't break any of our decoders anyway by changing CV values. That's one of the things we pride ourselves on during the testing procedure. We set every value in or every CV to zero to two fifty five to make sure that it doesn't break the decoder, and that makes sure it gives you the confidence to go on. But going back to the the CVs it's specifically, because we could have a whole hour long conversation just on consisting. So I'm going to try to nutshell this as much <laughs> as I can for you. Um, you know, and and to kind of, and I'll get to it here in just a second, but the first consist CV that you're going to look at is CV19. And if you think of it as an alias or an alternate address that the decoder is going to respond to when it's in a train, um, a lot of times I recommend it to, to people who have come to my class, use the first two lo- numbers of the lead locomotive or the trailing two numbers of the lead locomotive. Or you can even, in, in a large club, you can assign a club member ID number uh, and have them say, well, if you're running this train, if you're running a train, then your consist has to be this particular number. And it's a number between 1 and 127. 
And so like, say for example, uh, I'll use my example here and it's also easy for math. Uh, when I play hockey, I wear number 20 on my sweater. So whenever I go anywhere, I set my constant step for number 20. And so that way, when I set it up, I select local 20 on my throttle and I'm able to run the train. And I don't have to worry too much about somebody having conflicting addresses because 20 isn't necessarily a commonly used <laughs> number. Um, now, in CV19, we also tell the decoder whether you're facing forward or reverse in this consist. And to do that, if it's facing forward, you set CV19 simply to the address, in this case, at, uh, address 20. But if you're facing rearward, you have to tell the decoder that you're responding to address 20, but you're actually going to respond in the reverse direction. And that's where you add 128 to the value. Uh, so in this case, 20 plus 128 equals 148. So any locomotives I would have facing rearward would be CB19 set to 148. Now, when I select Loco 20, they're going to run just the way I expect them to, forward and reverse, but they're going to work together instead of trying to pull the opposite because as we know, DCC doesn't necessarily care about track polarity, whether you're moving forward or reverse. It's the command that's coming from your throttle. So this is the way the decoder interprets that. So what it says is when CV19 is set to any number, uh, in this case 20, it says, ah, I see a command for address 20. I'm in consist 20. So now I need to respond. So this command is move forward speed step 20, let's say. And so my locomotive says, ah, I'm moving forward in speed step 20. But the next locomotive is facing rearward, says, hi, hey, I'm at address 20, but I'm facing reverse. So I'm going to go reverse in speed step 20. So that's kind of how CV19 sets up. And then CV21 and 22 are the big ones. And those are the ones that tell the decoder which functions to respond to. And this is where I kind of, you know, I don't want to use the term laugh, but I kind of think about it a little bit because a lot of people, when they're consisting, they'll set everything to the same address. And then they'll go in and set the CV values for the horn volume and bell volume to zero. And they tell, you know, and then I hear that, uh, well, when I'm, I don't want to set all these CVs. It's like, well, you're already setting CVs because you're adjusting the volumes. And then now when you take it out of this consist, you not only have to change the address back, but now you have to change the, the volumes back to what they were. And it kind of goes back to if you don't know the defaults or if you don't happen to know what your preferred preferences are immediately handy, then it kind of makes it a little bit more of a cumbersome process. And so you end up running them in a consist all the time because, well, they're set up and they're running, so they're fine. So this is where the versatility comes in. And what I always talk about is consistency. Um, and this uh, speaks mostly to function mapping because function mapping it determines what buttons do what effects. So like, for example, zero is your headlight, one is your bell, two is your horn, three is your short horn, four is your dynamic brakes, and so on. And this is where I preach consistency because if you have all of your locomotives in your roster set the same way where I know I can grab any locomotive on my layout and button four is always going to do dynamic brake, whether it's equipped with it or not. I know function five is going to do a notch up and six does a notch down. I can be consistent. And so once I calculate the values for CV21 and 22 for a lead locomotive, a middle locomotive, or a trailing locomotive, I don't have to recalculate those every time because they're going to be consistent. Because I know any locomotive I throw in the lead, I'm going to set these, value, these lead values. Any locomotive that's in the middle, I'm going to set to this value. And that can be one locomotive or 10 locomotives or however many. 
And then the trailing locomotive I set to this value. And the only reason I use the trailing locomotive as separate from the lead is because a lot of people like to use the reverse headlight and or the coupler sound when you're coupling onto your train. You can use those those certain sound effects. And this is so this is where you would set that up. So CV21 tells the decoder, hey, you're in address 20, but these are the functions to address 20 that we want you to respond to. And this is where you would tell the lead locomotive to blow the horn, ring the bell, turn on your headlight. But your trailing locomotive will not turn on your headlight, will not blow your horn, will not ring the bell, but may respond to dynamic brakes. Or in, as Matt talked about in the last question with your F11 brakes and your F12 toggle to train brakes. And this is where the consistency pays off. And so once you calculate those values, you don't have to recalculate them again. And it gives you the versatility to use any locomotive with any other locomotive. You don't have to be married to this one particular setup because of the volume settings. Hey, I'm going to jump in here, Paul, too, and, and say, uh, let me interrupt you, I'm sorry, um, that uh, we've given our customers, and for that matter, anybody else who's using DCC consisting, a little worksheet uh, available in our diesel user's guide, our steam user's guide, and our electric user's guide for Tsunami 2 and for Econami. Uh, and if you look at page, I'm just going to say 65 here. Uh, 65 and 66 in our diesel user's guide, you'll see all of the constant function CVs, CV21, CV22, and then 245 and 246 for the higher functions there. And the user can simply go in and circle the bit that they want on. So if they want the horn on, they'll circle F2. If they want the dynamic brakes on, uh, they'll circle the F4. And it'll calculate a value there for you. And all you have to do is some basic addition, and you'll come up with the CV values for 21 and 22. So good good little way to try consisting. Uh, as George mentioned, if it breaks the decoder, uh, we wouldn't be doing our job correctly. So consisting is absolutely to use. We recommend using advanced consisting quite a bit. And the last couple of points I'll put on real quick. If CV19 is set to zero, the decoder doesn't care what's in 21 and 22 anymore because it's not relevant. So you can take it out of the consist, set 19 to zero, and then your locomotive goes back to an independent locomotive with all the same volumes, all the same function mapping, everything. You have no limits. You can blow the horn on that unit even if it was a third unit in the consist. And then next time you add it to a train, then you set 19, 21, and 22, and the new values for 21 and 22 will determine its position in the consist, and so it doesn't care what was in there before. Okay, well, let me ask you a question. Sure. Yes, you've got the uh, calculation charts in there. They're very mm -hmm. good. So if you've got a locomotive, because you always run it in the reverse orientation when you put it in a consist, so you can set... 29 let's say at 35 okay which will tell it that it's always going to be running in reverse okay when i go figure the value for i think it's cv22 for the headlight i've got one for front headlight two for reverse correct so am i gonna because the locomotive is facing reverse i want its headlight to come on when the consist reverses well 29 tells the decoder which end is facing forward. Right. And so everything is based on that. So whatever you've determined as forward, your CV22 calculation will be based on that. So if you're facing rearward, let's say you're long hood forward. And in yeah. most traditional senses, that's reverse. Um, if you've set that up to where your locomotive is running in your consist and you've got that, let's say, as the trailing unit with the short hood uh, facing rearward, yeah. then it knows that's the reverse light. Okay, so the it, headlight becomes the reverse light in that situation. 
Correct. And the decoder will also calculate which direction your consist is running so that even, you know, even if you're moving in forward, what would be deemed forward for that particular locomotive may not be forward in the, in the consist. And so it's intelligent and it knows which way the decoder is facing. Okay. Great question. A lot of long good forward questions come up. A lot of NS modelers out there. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I just stick with steam locomotives. They're all long good forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like you said, they don't have dynamic brakes. Sure, uh, that, that's the other thing. Exactly. Short of the cap forwards, long of the speed. <laughs> <laughs>
plugged into the board socket interfere with the programming if you're on a programming track? Great, great question, Chris. Uh, so a couple things that the current keeper does. Uh, current keeper will give you that added hold-up time, uh, what we call hold-up time, to get you over those switches, dirty tracks. I'm sure everybody knows that. Um, we always recommend that before you begin programming with a current keeper plugged in, that you fully charge that current keeper. Uh, we always encourage that you put it on the main line for two minutes, apply power, let it charge up completely. Um, if you fail to do so, what can happen is that as the decoder goes into a programming mode, uh, that extra hold up uh, time that current there if the current keeper is not completely charged will draw too much current from the programming track and interfere with the programming commands uh, not to get into the technicalities of DCC and how the programming track works but it looks at uh, the time duration and the amount of current sent out for each programming and it pings the decoder essentially saying uh, you know, here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to get information from you what do you respond to and it answers no until it sees that yes question so if the current keeper is trying to charge it can give a false no or a false yes with that current deviation as it's trying to charge and that voltage difference too that it could be drawing off the track there. So we always recommend that you plug it in, uh, charge it for at least two minutes on the main line uh, and then go over your programming track and, and program from there. If by some chance you're still having a trouble programming on the programming track with the current keeper, you can also just quickly disconnect the current keeper. And that is one good feature uh, of our new Tsunami 2 and Ekonomi board formats. Uh, three of the five formats have a quick plug on there. So if by some chance you're having a whole bunch of trouble on your programming track, you can just quickly unplug it, do the programming you need to do, and plug it right back in. Now, what's the life of the current uh, keepers? Well, it varies a little bit, Paul. Another good question. It uh, varies on the motor load draw, the audio amplifier draw. I will say we had, uh, there's a great video on YouTube somewhere that the listeners can find. Uh, one of our installers out in California had a Kurt Keeper with the new Ekonomi hardware here a couple years ago, and it lasted for about 45 seconds producing sound wow. off the track. Um, so you kill the power, take it off the track in about 45 seconds. Now, that number goes down very quickly once you start running the motor and, and uh, the audio amplifier, especially once you're blowing the horn and uh, running the motor. Uh, there's no advertised hold-up period or amount of time out there because, again, there's so many variables with motor current draw, lighting current draw, and what you're doing at the time. It's typically enough that it'll solve the problems of the little bits of dirty track, dirty wheels, uh, unpowered frogs usually, too. It'll get you over that without okay. a problem. So. so, all right, so you're talking at least, what, five, six seconds is a rule of thumb? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, not, not blowing the horn, not running the motor at full current draw, five or right. six seconds seems reasonable. The moment okay. you start blowing the horn, yeah, that's when it gets a little a little lower than that. So, But it's definitely more than enough. You know, at some point, too, uh, the current keeper, it, it really does depend on, again, what, what you've installed it in, what the motor current draw is, and lighting and the sound and such. And we're... And real quick, just a little aside, the, the biggest thing about the current keeper is when you're living, when your locomotive is running and living on the current keeper power, it's not seeing a DCC signal. Good point, George. So you want to try to minimize those. You don't want to make the current keeper be your, your only source of being able to get through certain sections of track. You ideally want to address the track power, but the current keeper is a good temporary solution because, like I said, if you're losing power from the track, it means you're not getting a signal. So if you're trying to stop or control your locomotive, it can become quickly a source of frustration, especially if you're trying to stop and your locomotive is living on the current keeper and it's continuing powering down the track. Okay. Great point, George. Thanks. I got your back. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else, Chris? Is there more? Oh, no, 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 I'm here. I'm here. Oh, okay. oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that was everything that we had in the first half. Okay. okay. But yeah, in I mean, in general, when we discussed this, it was nothing but pleasant surprises. And uh, there are a number of good decoders out there, but the thing that I love about the Tsunami family is the graphic equalizer. And that carries through. It's a great tried-and-true feature that we love and we promote. It uh, gives you the ability to have a full audio console in some, spent, uh, or some respect at your fingertips. So it's really Absolutely. I mean, you can just milk every little nuance out of speakers with that. Mm-hmm. I love Indeed. it. All right, thanks, Paul. We appreciate that. Uh, we, a lot of, we know a lot of our customers love it, and it was definitely a must-have feature that uh, carries through from the first generation. Yes. Indeed. Yes. All right. Anything else you guys want to mention? Stuff coming down the pike or anything like that? I, I know you've put in a, a hard day. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if there's anything you would like to add to it, yes. Hey, I'll, I'll, ju- I'll jump in for the shameless marketing department here at Soundtracks and say keep, keep your eyes uh, as customers on our website. Uh, we're, again, as I mentioned earlier, releasing new videos about how to configure our products features uh, with our products. Uh, we're trying to make it as easy as possible for people to, to open up that bag uh, that you pick off from your hobby shop shelf and, and do the install, help you out with that. We're doing some installation videos. Uh, we've posted a couple up there with our 21-pin NEM format decoder, as well as our uh, 200, our Eco 200 series decoder, and another an RTR model, Chris. Um, and uh, shameless plug for Adler in there, too. And uh, we, we want to let you guys know, as, as customers, as a whole out there, we appreciate your feedback. Uh, we're doing some surveys online here, too, coming up in the near future and at local train shows, uh, local events that we're attending. And we always like hearing from, from our customer base, and, and it does drive our product development. Keep your eyes on our Facebook page as well and our website for updates about new products. Great. Well, I tell you what, I'm very grateful to Soundtracks for allowing you two gentlemen to come on the show. Of course, uh, yeah. Share the insights. Uh, I think this is going to be a well-received uh, podcast. So Good, glad to hear that. We think so, too. We're excited, and uh, we're happy to come back uh, anytime you want. Uh, we can talk trains anytime. All right. Chris, you got any final thoughts? Um, you know, I, I'm kind of... I kind of said everything I needed to say about the tsunami too, and, and <laughs> but you know there there's more cool stuff coming that I don't think anyone on this call other than Paul is privy to. <laughs> <laughs> so That's yeah, lots yeah. of cool stuff. Yeah, there, there's there's more coming, you know. So it's it, it's not just neat stuff for soundtracks. It's like we're we're, we're we're looking at model trains as an end-to-end sort of uh, uh, product, and uh, you know, I'm I'm really thrilled to you know be working with uh, Matt Dowd and, and George. Oh, I know. I've got one more thing. You just triggered it. <laughs> oh, I did. Yeah. What's the motivation behind the toilet flush? Oh, you've got to have the toilet flush. You got to have it. Hey, you know what it was? I, I'm not going to lie here. It was a bullet point. Uh, it was a bullet point, but it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's, it brings some levity into it. Hey, if you remember on our old product line, for those of you narrow gauge modelers out there, we had the Canadian geese honking on our, uh, our GS goose decoders. So you gotta add some levity, have some fun in there. Well, I'm trying to pair it up with a door slam and the f- footsteps and somebody moving at a, at a fast pace. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, that's a great product idea, Paul. We'll put that in the next one. <laughs> well, you can adjust the probability for how frequently it happens. So there is that. If only we could do that to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, then what you do for radio chatter is you have the fireman ordering from uh, Billy Bob's Burritos. <laughs> and then that becomes your uh, probability factor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Where's the cab chatter about the crew going to beans, you know? Oh, man. <laughs> I tell you what, we'll look for some next time. It's all recorded off of the real thing. So next time we get a crew that says, hey, we're going to beans, we'll put it in there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Golly. Again, thank you guys for your time. Thank you. For Absolute us. pleasure, guys. Thanks, and uh, good luck. We'll, ch we'll chat more in the future. I'm sure. Hope to do so. Okay, right. Doke. You guys have a good night. Hey, you All too. Right, good night. Take bye care. bye.